have had the privilege recently of hearing some uh, very amazing and, and convicting sermons out of Luke 9. Uh, the, the understanding essentially that the Christian life is one where we are to be willing to give up everything for the sake of following Christ. So today we are going to talk about some, some principles for Christian living that I think logically flow out of that reality. And this has to do with our attitude towards money and material possessions and how important those things are to us. Uh, what, what should the one who has died to this life and committed himself to taking up his cross daily look like when it comes to how he thinks about money and material possessions? According to a study I saw on uh, CNBC that was done over uh, about three years ago or so, the average person spends more than half of their waking hours thinking about money in some way or another, either stressing over it or planning on how they are going to spend it um, or seeking ways to spend it. Um, online shopping, that type of thing, or, or how to make more of it. We, we think about money and material possessions more than we do about, about God or about relationships with the important people in our lives. According, again, according to this study, it was showing as money is by far, and in the implications of money, is by far the, the biggest thing that the average person spends their time thinking about. Another study done around the same time revealed that 90% of Americans are stressed over money. 90%. In interviewing some of the people in that survey, they, they were saying that they don't want to think about money as much as they do, but they just can't help it. And it's just commonplace when you think about it in this day and age for us to, to even bond over, over complaining about money or talking about some, some of the, the latest and, and best things to spend money on. The disposition of the world that we live in is constantly telling us that money and possessions are important. That, that they are what is truly important. So, so we'll see news stories uh, that show us things that, that we know we should acknowledge are important, different tragedies and, and huge events going on and uh, elections and all that type of stuff. And, and maybe we're distracted by those for a while, but then those new news programs are filled with commercials that quickly remind us again what our hearts and our lives demonstrate to be truly important to us. When we understand some of these statistics and we take stock of our own lives and we think about how much this might be true for us, whether we are consciously aware of it or not, it is no wonder that, the past, that this passage today speaks as strongly as it does. So today, today again, we're going to look at the heart, that look at the heart response of the true disciple of Christ. What does taking up our cross look like when it comes to the way we think about and respond to earthly riches. And as you can see in your bulletins, we're going to break it into two points and kind of a positive understanding of how we are to be and then a, a negative warning about what we need to be aware of. So I have it as a, a great gain or a great gain and a destructive danger. Those are That's the way we're going to categorize our thoughts today. So I want to read the passage now together uh, as we start in on this first point. But I want to begin in verse 3 to get a little more context as to what Paul is, is saying in verse 6 when he talks about a great gain. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ... And the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understanding and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind 
and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these will we, we, will we be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You'll notice here that Paul is warning Timothy of of the presence of of false teachers. That's the context of this passage. False teachers, that, that he needs to be aware of them as he is building this church in Ephesus. So our passage in verses 6 through 10 comes in the context of false teachers and their wrong motives. Paul is painting the picture here of men who are not godly. And you can see that by the list of the list of vices here. All of the stuff he says in those verses in three through through five describing them. But nevertheless, in spite of all those vices, we're told that they have a desire to appear godly. They have a desire for godliness. And Paul gives the reason for that. that their belief that appearing godly is a means of great gain to them. That's what he says in verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. So, so, so he says you're, they're imagining, they're, they're making it up that godliness will give them great gain. So are we to conclude then that this means that pursuing godliness is of no value? Of course not. Uh, not based on this context. And that's what he's about to say. But, but he is affirming, what he's doing here is he's affirming a biblical truth that, 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 would, that would make false teachers, false teachers like today's prosperity, uh, prosperity gospel preachers, it would make them quickly kind of turn the page in their Bibles or, or cut to a commercial break. It's the, it's the truth um, it's, it's a truth that they don't want to acknowledge in an, or address. And it's, it's the truth that true godliness is of no use in the pursuit of earthly wealth. The only kind of godliness that can be used for earthly wealth is an appearance of godliness or a facade of godliness that actually only comes when you redefine what godliness is. So the context of that which is important to false teachers, Paul says that they are fooling themselves thinking that godliness is of great gain. But then he says in the next verse, but godliness is great gain. But here he adds the very important phrase, with contentment. And the Greek conjunction de is there. It's translated as but. You see that but. So that indicates that Paul is indeed talking about two contrasting understandings of the idea of godliness being great gain. So the, there's a, the, what the false teachers are thinking of when it comes to godliness is not true godliness. It's a different type of godliness. And this, so this right kind of godliness is the kind that is always, always connected with contentment. That's what true godliness looks like. It's always connected with contentment. But the great gain that Paul has in mind here is not one that comes from adding, adding, girth, uh, adding, <laughs> adding earthly goods and pleasures to yourself. It's not, great, it's not that kind of great gain. It's not a great gain in the way we normally think of the word. The idea that means addition, adding something. Gaining means adding something. It's not that. What Paul is talking about is not adding to your life, but the gain that comes from changing your perspective. The gain that takes place when you understand things for how they actually are. It's akin to, to the type of gain that would be experienced by, say, a, a panhandler who might be out one night 
begging for money, and a man with a nice car pulls up and gives him a rock. And the panhandler becomes agitated and begins to use the rock to start breaking into people's cars to steal spare change, only discover and only to discover in the light of the police car that the rock that was given to him was actually a large diamond worth more than he could ever make if he spent his entire life breaking into cars. The, the key to Christian contentment is understanding reality, understanding what is true. It's a shift in perspective, not just thinking about things differently, but understanding them as they actually are. That's how it is a gain. Not that something is added to us, but that we understand that we have no need for for any material possessions to be given to us. Or, for that matter, for trials to be removed from us. That's why what Paul is doing in verses 6 through 8 is not giving us imperatives, but reminding us of truth. So with that, I want us to see in this first point, I want us to see three sub-points under the category great gain. And they have to do with a shift in perspective. Sub-point A, a right perspective in godliness. We see that in verse 6. Sub-point B, a right perspective on this life. We see that in verse 7. And sub-point C, a right perspective on what is truly needful, and that's in verse 8. So, sub-point A, a right perspective on godliness, what godliness actually is. Godliness, true godliness, is accompanied by contentment. That's what true godliness is. If you notice back in verse 5, you can see that the false teachers think of godliness as a means as a means to great gain, meaning that they see godliness as one of a number of possible ways in order to get that which they really want. Like, like, I'll try, I guess I'll try godliness for a while and and see if I can use that to get what I really want out of life. I've tried, you know, to use other things in order to be able to get what I want out of life. I get to get that new car or the, the house I want. So let me try godliness and see if that'll work. See if God will reward me for that. To those type of people, what Paul is saying makes absolutely no sense. Because their understanding of great gain is is askew. It's off. Because contentment means being satisfied with what I have. And if I'm satisfied with, with what I have... Well, and then how am I ever going to keep up with the fashion trends or upgrade my car or live in the type of house I've always dreamed of or give my kids the best education they can possibly have? What we are seeing here is that there is no version of godliness that allows you to keep thinking anything along these lines. If in your heart, those are the types of desires that are, that are somehow driving you in some way and the decisions you make, for you and for your family, then you cannot really say that you are pursuing godliness as Paul's talking about it. Because Paul says true godliness, the only kind that offers any real benefit is that which is unbreakably connected to contentment. Growth in godliness can only happen in a heart that is content. So a right perspective on godliness means that this is our understanding, that there is no such thing as godliness apart from contentment. Therefore, if our desire is to grow in godliness, which it should be if you are in fact a Christian, then you must make it your duty to be one who understands and is inwardly and outwardly marked by the joy that is true Christian contentment. So what does it mean to be content? It has the basic understanding of being satisfied, but if we think of it from a uniquely Christian point of view, I like to use the definition that English Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs gives in his incredibly helpful book, a a book that very much helped set my perspective straight uh, about 10 years ago. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian contentment. Uh, He defines it this way. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet 
inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'll read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Is essentially acting like you believe that God is who he reveals himself to be in the Bible. And then you act like you believe it by trusting him and living obediently to him. So, of course, true godliness must be accompanied by contentment. That just makes logical sense. For it not to be connected to contentment would be an indication that in some way or another, you do not believe that God is who he says he is, and you don't believe that, that, he prom- that the promises he makes to those who are his children are, are, are valid. It means that you don't actually, something in your heart doesn't actually believe that he is the wise and sovereign king of the universe and the loving father to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian contentment also must be distinguished from how the world speaks of contentment. So it's important to get this uh, category error out of your head because you hear them talk about a lot, and it's kind of popular now, and when they talk about how I, I you know, I'm, I, there's a lot of, especially women's books out there that are like, I, I'm enough in and of myself. I'm, I'm good enough. I'm, I'm enough. They, they just kind of have this, this mindset that contentment means self-sufficiency. I, I'm just fine the way that I am, and I don't need to change. I'm trying to reinforce themselves and build themselves up and prop themselves up that way. It's like this mindset of personal empowerment. But that's different than what we're talking about here. And Christian contentment is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. Christ-sufficiency. It's not, it's not that I have all I need in and of myself. It's that Christ has all I need, and I have it through union with Him. All this together just, just reinforces the truth that there is no such thing as godliness apart from contentment. This is, a, a, this is consistent with, with Jesus' statement. Remember when he says, you cannot serve both God and money. If you could, then contentment would not be necessary, but you can't. As it is, he says, the only option for the one who attempts this is that he will love one and hate the other. You will either see God as the loving Father who knows what's best for you and all that he gives you, or you will see him as the one keeping you from that which could make you truly happy. So the right perspective on true godliness shows us that if we are truly striving to follow after Christ, then we will be those who are defined by contentment. So contentment leads to a right perspective on what it means to be godly, and it also leads then to this second subpoint, subpoint B, which is a right perspective on this life. On this earthly life, we see this in verse 7 where he says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can, and we cannot take anything out of the world. We can see from this verse that when we are talking about a right perspective on this life, we are talking about one who understands this life to be temporal. One who understands this life to be temporal. And, 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 not, just, and not even just temporal, but, but actually really short in light of eternity. In this one little sentence, Paul is able to summarize the the eternal value, the eternal value of all of the material possessions that you spend countless hours and weeks and months and years working for and living to acquire on this earth. In the end, you may bring the exact amount of those things with you that you brought in to the world. You, you may be buried in some really fancy clothes with some of your possessions, but that still just stays here while your soul moves on. It's not yours anymore. It's just in a different place. Paul wants to emphasize this point. The word uden 
which is translated as, as, as nothing here, the, the word that's translated as nothing, it's placed at the very beginning of the sentence in, in the Greek text. It's the, it's the first word in the sentence, the, the word nothing. So, so, so we're suppo- what we're supposed to think about then is like, imagine someone shouting to you something, nothing, nothing. That is what you bring into the world, and that is what you leave with. That truth needs to, to resonate with us. It needs to, to get into the core of who we are. The, the Bible repeats this truth in several places because so, so we know it's, it's, it's very important. Probably most well-known in the book of Job, remember in, in chapter 1, verse 21, after all of these calamities that start taking all of his, everything of earthy, earthly value from him, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The, the truth is stated similarly in Ecclesiastes 5.15, where the preacher says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. The point of this verse is that, that we are to understand that thinking about the way our physical lives begin and the way they end should have some sort of governing effect on the way we live our lives. It should, and it should surely cause us then to evaluate how we spend all of our time and our money, how we prioritize different things. I mean, this is the principle that Jesus is pointing to in Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You remember this passage? Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither, neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Because of the, the, the tiny timeline of our lives on this earth, we should be spending our resources on that which will endure after we are gone, that which contributes to eternity. And that would be the kingdom of God giving our time, our energy, our resources to the building of His church and to His kingdom. Nothing else lasts. As as an unregenerate teenager, there were many times when my mom would witness me wasting hours upon hours playing video games, which which were also actually the things I'd spend my money on. She would come downstairs and ask me a couple of questions about my day, maybe even, maybe even feign interest in the game I was playing. And on more than one occasion, she would find a way to work this in. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You've probably heard that same line from your parents before or from someone it's it's from a fairly famous poem from C.T. Studd a missionary when you hear that when you hear that phrase it makes you rage when you're an unbeliever and and if you're a believer it kind of it kind of prods you because you know it's true and it's a call to evaluate whatever you are doing in that moment. Even in, in what your heart wants to do is be like, well, you don't spend all your time. But it's a call for you to evaluate your heart. So in light of this truth, Christian contentment makes so much sense. It's completely logical. Because nothing we lose here during our earthly lives is anything that we were ever going to keep. Everything that is actually of any eternal value to you cannot be taken. It's why we we shouldn't care about having designer clothes or the most expensive cars or the biggest houses or the latest in technological breakthroughs. Those are the things that people who are only concerned about this life spend all their time thinking about. Is it bad to have all those things? Not necessarily. But if losing them will cause you to sin in your attitude, or the fact that you don't have them will cause you to, to sin with a covetous attitude, then there is something deeply flawed with your perspective that this passage is confronting. 
We are to be those with a perspective that views this life for what it is, a brief period of time where you can never lose anything of real value, but where you are destined to lose everything else. This truth, this right perspective on the temporal nature of our short time on earth leads us naturally then into the, into the next point, which is thinking through what is truly important. A right perspective on what is truly important. That's subpoint C. Right perspective on what is truly needful. And we see again this in verse 8. He says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The great gain that is true godliness, that, is, that which is marked by contentment, remember, true godliness is marked by contentment, comes when you are living in light of, of both of these last two sub-points. Understanding right perspective on this life and a right perspective on what is truly needful. So if you have a settled understanding about the temporal nature of this earthly life in comparison to eternal glory with your Creator and Savior, and you have a right understanding of what is truly needful, if those two truths are, are, are not just something that you mentally adhere to, but that your heart has conformed to, then you will be content. You will live a life that is marked by Christian contentment. And does that mean that we should all, again, t- take a vow of poverty and sell all of our possessions except for a few sets of clothes that we maybe like and then go move into one of those stupid tiny houses from that HGTV show for the rest of our lives? It, it, it probably doesn't mean that for us. But it certainly does mean that we need to be the type of people who could be forced into a situation like that and yet remain joyful. Because we know that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Jesus did tell one rich young man to sell all that he had and then to come and follow him. But he also went into a lot of other homes, even some rich people, and didn't tell them to do that. And we rightly interpret that passage of Jesus and the rich young ruler We know that Jesus told him that in order to expose his heart, to show what was actually really important to him. And that's the concern here with us also. And by the way, don't just dismiss that um, that, that story because it's a unique case. A lot of times people read that and they're like, oh, does Jesus want me to sell all my possessions? And someone explains to them the context of it. And they're like, oh, whew, good. I have a feeling that that command would be the test that exposed the true heart of many in our country who claim Christ as Lord. When we are told that we are to be content with food and clothing, what's at the heart of that? And the word translated as clothing here is actually a more general word, and it can actually be translated as as covering. So it could just be shelter, clothing, that idea. The idea of what we need to be content when our basic needs are taken care of. That, that's that's what, what Paul is going for here. Why is that? Because that's what we need for our task while we are here. Again, again, linking back to the last point, we have a very small amount of time in this life. And the reason that God doesn't, doesn't just take us straight to heaven when he saves us is because we have been saved to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do, from Ephesians 2.10. Most essentially, that means evangelism and discipleship within the church. So so we have a need for whatever whatever in this life makes uh, makes that possible and helps us to do that better. As long as God keeps providing food and clothing for you, you have a job to be doing. And that job is not worrying about getting more clothing and better food. Whatever you have, you use it for the glory of God. And if He so desires to give you more, that's great. But not receiving more or not receiving what someone else who who you don't think is as faithful as you are is receiving, that that is bad. It's bad. <laughs> it's a sign of a heart that's not right. It means you've lost sight of why you're here. You've lost sight of what is truly needful. So what, what is it that is truly needful? 
So a lot of times we look at a passage like this and we think, okay, that's right. All I really need is food and shelter and everything else is just extra. And there's some truth to that. But but actually, we we don't need food and shelter either. We we only need those things the, the same way that we need air to continue living in this existence. Again, the only reason that you need any of those things is to continue on the mission that God has for you while you are here on this planet. One day, all of those things will be taken away and your physical life will end. They are not eternally needful. Not eternally important. What is needful is Christ. And that's all. In light of eternity... We all have just one essential need. And that is a righteousness that we can never earn. We need to remember that that starving to death in a place where you have no shelter isn't even close to the worst thing that can happen to someone. We were separated from God because of our sins. The holy justice of of God, which demands that our sin be paid for, was hanging over us. And since it was sin against a perfectly holy God, rebellion against Him, it means that when we do enter into eternity at the end of this short life, it should mean an eternity of being justly punished in hell for our sins against an infinite God. Jesus Christ as both God and and man, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life with no sin and was offered up as an atoning sacrifice. He took the just punishment of God for our sins on Himself. And He rose from the dead, demonstrating that death does not hold power over those who repent of their sins and put their trust in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Not only that, but in addition to having all of our sins taken away, we also have been credited with the righteous life of Christ, and we are adopted as true children of God. It is this that we need, nothing else. This, this reality is what makes true Christian contentment, no matter, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, not only possible, but logical. Once we understand the, the unbelievable mercy of God that has been extended to us in Christ on the cross, how could we ever struggle with discontentment? In fact, It's actually true that all discontentment that you feel in your life is directly related to an undervaluing of the gospel or a failure to understand it in its fullness. When you truly understand that you have everything of eternal significance given to you in Christ, then the only reason you would ever covet or complain about money or material possessions is because you have lost your perspective. Jeremiah Burroughs helps us again when it comes to putting things in perspective. He says that that the, the person who really understands the gospel should have his heart softened by the reality of just how great and awesome God is and how amazing His mercy upon those who are unworthy of it. I'm going to string together some of his quotes so you, so you can hear this point in its fullness. He says, You know how when you strike something soft, it makes no noise. But if you strike a hard thing, it makes a noise. So it is with the hearts of men who are full of themselves and hardened with self-love. If they receive a stroke, they make a noise. But a self-denying Christian yields to God's hand and makes no noise. So that that complaining and murmuring that we do when we don't have something that we desire is is a demonstration that our hearts have not been softened by the gospel as they should. We're forgetting forgetting in that place the the priceless riches that are are ours through our union with Christ. And we are thinking far too highly of ourselves 
and of that which will perish. And he goes on to say, Whatever the Lord shall lay upon us, he is righteous. For he has to deal with a most wretched creature. A discontented heart is troubled because he has no more comfort. But a self-denying man rather wonders that he has as much as he has. Oh, says the one, I have but a little. Yes, says the man who has learned this lesson. But I rather wonder that God bestows upon me the liberty of breathing in the air, knowing how vile I am and knowing how much sin the Lord sees in me. Thus, a godly man wonders at his cross that it is not more, and a wicked man wonders why his cross is so much. And then reminds us of the truth of our position before God and says, Do you not call God your Father? Do you not stand in relation to Him as a child? What? Do you murmur? Are you the Son of the King of Heaven? And yet so disquieted, troubled, and vexed at every little thing that happens? It's as if the King's Son were to cry out that He is undone for losing a toy. What an unworthy thing this would be. So do you. You cry out as if you were undone and yet are a king's son. You dishonor your father in this as if he had not wisdom, power, or mercy enough to provide for you. So, the foundation for being content with whatever we have is because we understand that that which is truly needful can never be taken away from us, and anything we receive apart from that which is truly needful is just uh, uh, which is truly needful is just bonus grace and mercy, which is to be used for the furtherance of our work here on this earth. This is why we are here not to not to live for ourselves and fulfill our desires, but to live for Him. So from this, then, we can understand that there is no such thing as true godliness apart from contentment. And contentment is not about us getting the things that we desire so that we can finally be happy, like the kid on his birthday who really believes that just getting that one more toy is the last thing he needs in life, and that's going to make him happy. No, contentment is about the removal of unnecessary, fleeting, selfish desires and replacing them with the joy that comes from the perspective shift that tells us that the only thing that we could ever need has been gloriously given to us in the gospel of Christ, and it is something that we can never lose. And this leads then to our second point. So, so we understand that we are to seek after this, this great gain of godliness with contentment. That, that our lives should be marked by it. And that we should try and grow in it through the practice of, of thinking through all of the great truths of the gospel. And letting that be the filter through which we analyze the importance and usefulness of, of everything else. But... We are also given by Paul a warning of a destructive danger. One that we need to be cautious of. It's, one, it's essentially the opposite of contentment. The danger of desiring to be rich. The desire to be rich. One of the reasons we need to make sure that we are content is because the desire for wealth is so dangerous. It is It is subtle. We don't easily identify it as, as quickly as we do other sins of thought, like, like lust or hatred. But Paul warns us here that the desire to be rich has been one of the most destructive forces in the heart of humanity throughout history. Look what he says in verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice that the sin being warned of is the desire to be rich. It's the desire to be rich, not being rich in and of itself. It is, again, it's not a sin to be rich. There are several godly rich people in the Bible. And actually the verses uh, at the end of this chapter in, in 17 through 19, which we'll look at next week, indicate that there are rich people who are a part of the church that Timothy is leading in Ephesus. 
So again, the concern here is about what is going on in the heart. It is the desire to be rich that is the danger. This can be equally a sin of the poor who have the desire to be rich, which demonstrates that they are not content with what they have. Or it can be a sin of the rich that, can, that, that can't bear the thought of having to do with less, that shows that they, uh, they, they are not content with, with what is truly important. The one who fails to find satisfaction in God and begins down the dangerous path of believing happiness can be found in something else is in trouble. When you take that long look at someone else that has something that you covet and you start to daydream about how your life would benefit from having something like that. When you start thinking through the types of things you would do if you were making the same amount of money as so-and-so is making. When you start feeling the temptation, even when you're, when you're walking by the scratch-off machine in the grocery store and think, ah, there's no harm in maybe wasting a few dollars. Why not me? Why not I be the one who wins that? When we start thinking those types of thoughts, we need to be on guard. We need to recognize the danger that we are in. We see at the outset of this verse, there's three things, three things that we are in danger of falling into. Temptation, a snare, and many senseless and harmful desires. And I I say danger here, but actually the original danger, the the warning of danger is, is over when you begin to desire riches because you have already fallen. Just when your heart already begins to desire riches, you have fallen. Look at the wording. Look at the wording there. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. So it's, it's not they have a danger of falling. It's that they have. When, when we are so tempted to think that there is nothing wrong with daydreaming and kind of nursing along that desire for riches to imagine that what it would be like to just have some more money, what you could do for yourself or your family. Of course, I'd give some to the church, but what I could do for myself and the family. If I just had a little more, just a little more, what could I do? Right, the danger has passed you at this point, and you're already falling. You're already falling. You need to repent. So the word used for fall here is, is, is present tense, meaning this is, a, this is a continuing action for those who desire riches. They are falling they're falling into all three of these things. Right? The, the Greek conjunction chi, meaning and or, or also, is there So, so, so what's in, in all of those things. So, so what seems like a harmless desire, because right, everyone wants more money, right? Everyone thinks about that. Or a harmless desire, just daydreaming, is actually the act of falling into temptation and a snare and many senseless and harmful desires. You're already there. You have fallen into all three of them. Not just there's a chance of one of them. All three of them, they're connected. First, you've fallen into temptation. You've fallen into, the, into temptation. The temptation is, is, is not, because this is how we think of it, the temptation is not having a desire, is not thinking that having a desire to be rich might tempt me to do something foolish or sinful to try and make some money. No, the temptation was being tempted not to be content in Christ. Falling into temptation is when your heart starts to desire riches. You've already fallen. The same way that lust isn't the temptation to commit sexual immorality, the temptation was not being satisfied in the provision of God in your life. Lust is already falling into it. When those frequent thoughts of, of desire for riches or other material possessions come into your head, you need to recognize it right there as being over the line already. And you fight against it. You war against it in the same way you would when you start having feelings of hatred or lust because you know, you know what those are and what they mean. Second, you've fallen into a snare or a trap. You've been lured into a trap that's set for you. And this is in reference to, to Satan. And Paul uses the word for, that's translated as snare here. 
Uh, he uses it two other times in his letters to Timothy, and both times it's in reference to the snare of the devil, the trap of the devil. Do you realize that when you look at that lottery machine or when you start imagining yourself in that car driving by, or even when you start, <laughs> start willingly damaging your body by eating at McDonald's an unhealthy amount of times because they're running that Monopoly game promotion. Just, you just want a few more chances to win that million dollars. Do you realize that even in those moments, you're right where Satan wants you? And he's not doing anything new. His strategy hasn't changed. It's the same thing as in the garden. He's enticing you to think, to start to contemplate that God is withholding something good from you. And you're falling for it. You have a spirit of discontentment. It's not, it's not really noticeable to maybe everyone else, but you can see it in the fact that you're willing to, to start to alter, to change the pattern of your life in order to just nurture that little desire to be rich a little more. The godly response should be that when you start to see that desire sprouting up at all, you, you immediately go after it. You immediately war against it, fight it, kill it, put it to death. Third, you have already fallen into many senseless or foolish and harmful desires. You've already fallen into them. Many, but it's just this one thing. It's just this one desire. How is, it, how is my one desire, many desires? It's just this one thing I'm struggling with, not a lot. No, no, the, the desire for money. Ugh. The desire for, with the desire for money comes all kinds of sinful desires. Just really quickly, I jotted down. With the desire for money, with the desire for riches, comes the desire to be your own ruler. The desire to find fulfillment in that which cannot fulfill you. The desire to live for a life that is perishing. The desire to put down your cross. The desire to make a God of your own image. A God, by the way, that is similar to the one that the prosperity teachers want. And that you know better than. You know that's not the true God. The desire to place earthly treasures above heavenly treasures. The desire to trust in something other than God for your ultimate joy. The desire to, to maybe be a little more lazy. But not having to work as hard. The desire to maybe think a little less of your spouse and what their job is. The desire to put yourself above others. The desire for comfort over obedience. The desire to recoil from discipline rather than lean into it and learn. There's, just, there's more than that, but those are just a few that would naturally come along. They naturally come attached to the desire for riches, that little innocent desire for riches, let alone all the other type of sinful desires that begin to, to slip in the more you nurture that desire. And at the end of that verse, we see the destruction that these desires lead to. It says that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's a unique word that's translated as plunge. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's used to describe a ship that is sinking, that is being pulled down. The word literally means to be drugged to the bottom. The desire for money has the potential to pull you to the bottom, destroy you, ruin you. So many people don't take this seriously. They don't fight to put to death that desire for riches right when they see it and they slowly indulge it little by little. Even though many worldly people advise that riches corrupt, they still think they can handle it they can keep that desire in check and control. Maybe one day they do end up becoming wealthy. When they get to the end of their life and they find that they have wasted it serving a false god. Or maybe they have that desire and they can't attain it and they never attain it and they destroy their family and their life and their pursuit of it. In either case, in all cases, where those who should know better begin to flirt with the desire for money, the desire for riches. 
I mean, they have every intention of maintaining control and not letting it get out of hand. But the picture here is of one being drugged to the bottom slowly against the will. No one intends to be destroyed by the desire for riches. That is just the natural process that will happen if you don't take it seriously and work on killing it and replacing that desire for money with a greater contentment in Christ and a desire to know him more. Verse 9 is a pretty powerful verse when you really unpack it like that. And it, and it should be enough to cause us to take seriously the destructive danger of the desire for riches. But to further emphasize the seriousness of this issue, Paul adds verse 10, which is a fairly famous verse. The beginning of verse 10 is actually the reason for verse 9. The reason verse 9 is true is because of what the beginning of verse 10 says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. All kinds of evils. It's not, again, it's not money that is the root of all evil, as it's sometimes quoted wrongly. Money is just a, money is just a resource, a resource that we can use for good or bad purposes. Again, it's the heart that's at stake. It's, it's the love of money that's the concern. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So you get this picture when you think of a root. You, you can get this picture in your head of the root of this massive tree as the love of money. And then springing up from that is this large tree with, with all these branches. And every branch is every kind of sin imaginable. And it's all nurtured. And it's all fed by this root that is the love of money. This is not hard to imagine because, again, the love of money leads to discontentment. And all sin, all sin is committed because we have grown discontent with God in one way or another. All sin comes from that. And then Paul says something that should cause us all to pause. He says, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains or sorrows. Now Paul goes from talking about potentiality, what, what, what he knows will happen to you, to something that he knows has already happened, something he has seen, something he has witnessed. He's now talking about real people who have walked away from the faith through this craving for money and riches. Now, we know that those who wander away from the faith, it's not that they're losing their salvation, but rather they're demonstrating that they were never actually saved. You know, we have it on good authority from Jesus Christ Himself that He will not lose any that His Father has given Him. If Christ has paid the full penalty for your sins, it can't be unpaid. If you have been justified, then you will be glorified and you are right now being sanctified, meaning that God is growing to you. This is what sanctification is. God is growing you into His likeness. And one of the ways He does that is through passages like this. That means that we, we don't see a passage like this or like the passage we read in Hebrews 6 earlier and say, well, I, I don't have to worry about wandering away because I'm a Christian, so I know that that won't happen to me. Good. If that is your response, you need to know that that is not how a Christian responds to the Word of God. It is true that it is God who keeps you, but part of the means that He uses of keeping you and sanctifying you are passages like this. Because when a Christian who is, who is seeing and hearing the Word of God reads a warning like this, and he is told about the dangers of, desire, of desiring riches and the danger of the love for money, he does not say, well, thankfully, I know that it will never get too out of hand for me. So I can kind of continue maybe walking the line where I am right now, not ever examining my heart to make sure I'm content in Christ and that there's nothing that I desire that would place me in danger. You know, the, the Christian hears a passage like this and says, Far be it for me 
to let any kind of desire for riches ever start to make its residence in my heart at all. What can I do? What can I do to make sure I'm more content in Christ and I'm content completely in Him? Who can I talk to? Who can I get to help me? What what are areas in my life already that might that might be demonstrating that I that I have a, this desire has already come up? I have a desire for wealth and material possessions. The true Christian does not trust in past experiences as evidence that he will not wander from the faith. But he looks to his current war on sin in his life. And the desire to take every warning from God with absolute seriousness. Knowing that it's, it's God who gives him the power to do that. To hate those things. Now, if your hatred for sin in all of its forms isn't strong, that is not a good sign. A true Christian asks, am I right now, am I right now fighting to put off every scrap of sin that clings to me? Am I testing my desires to make sure they are only those only those desires that are met in Christ. So, as those who have been changed, those whose affections should no longer look like the affections of those whose hearts remain callous towards the things of God, it must be our desire to conform our lives in every way to the holiness of the God who saved us. Beloved, we have been given everything. We have been given everything of any real value in Christ. All that we have in Christ, we can never lose. It can never be taken from us. And as we come to understand that, we cannot, we cannot pursue true godliness apart from a content heart as we come to understand that let us make every effort to adjust our perspective in accordance with this great reality this great reality that we have been saved that we've been bought by the blood of christ that everything everything that we could have that's of any kind of eternal significance is ours and cannot be taken away Conform our hearts to that reality. Find lasting contentment in Him. And let's take seriously the warnings He gives to us about things that can take our eyes off of this truth, things that can skew our perspective and cause us to place a high value on that which is pointless and perishing. May we refuse to ever make peace in our hearts with any desire that wants us to seek satisfaction in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its corrective. We, we understand the seriousness of the desire for riches and what it can lead to. Lord, make us Help us to be content in that which is truly important, that which you have given to us. Father, may there not be a Demas in this room, one who, Demas, who is a, a companion, a faithful companion with Paul, sees everything that he's doing, eyewitness to the ministry of Paul but his heart has never changed. And we find out, abandons Paul because he is in love with this world. Lord, help us to take seriously this passage. Help us to examine our hearts. May our contentment be in you and you alone. Help us to recognize riches and material possessions for what they are. Maybe we, may we be a church that this is obvious in inwardly and outwardly. In Jesus' name. Amen.